One of the yamas, it's non-attachment, it's aparigraha. So it's all about non-grasping. When something leaves your life, it doesn't have to be devastation. You know, like it's the teaching of, okay, allowing this to change, allowing it to, allowing for grace to have it be okay. Because we are always changing. And the longer we attach ourselves to this idea that things have to stay exactly how they are, that is really going to set us up for so much disappointment. So just, you know, it is what it is, as as cliche as that sounds. (laughs) Welcome to the Chick Monks podcast, where we explore the spiritual path of contemplative Christianity with a female voice and perspective. Hello, Chick Monks. I am your host, Heather Lawrence, and I am so glad to have your company in these thoughts and conversations. And I'm so happy to finally be sharing this interview with you all. And I think it actually might just be in perfect timing. Because in this conversation, you'll hear kindness and inspiration to take control of what you can in your life as we start a new year with residual chaos and anxiety rolling over from the year before. There's a lot of speaking from our hearts in this conversation with a balance of hope and authenticity and an invitation to spiritual disciplines. And to be honest with you, I've been sitting on this interview for like three months for a combination of reasons, including but not limited to imposter syndrome, procrastination, and, you know, the general trauma and emotional burden that 2020 layered over us before we could even know what was happening. And on that note, Before I introduce our guest, I just want to name that imposter syndrome and procrastination have woven together to keep me still and quiet and not releasing podcasts or thoughts or creativity into the world. And in the spirit of self-compassion, I gave myself room to avoid this work for as long as I needed to. And when I did that, I learned that underneath both, underneath the procrastination and the imposter syndrome and these barriers I had put up between myself and the work that brings me so much joy to do, underneath both was a simmering belief in my own powerlessness. Does that resonate to you at all? I mean, think about what we've lived through as a society, as, as a globe. I felt powerless to make my life circumstances what I think I want them to be. And I bought into it. I bought into it so fully that I actually gave up the power I did have. So here's my point. Perceived powerlessness can be paralyzing. For sure, it can do a lot of things. But for me, this time, it turned out in paralysis, caving inward, disconnecting from finding meaning at all in my external world. I snapped out of it, though, when I realized I do have something to offer by using the gifts I know I have to meet a need right in front of me. Once I responded to an invitation to offer my gifts, it snowballed into a new awareness of what I can change in my own life, internally and externally. So all this to say, on the off chance that you listener, are also a human who wrestles with procrastination, consider that your procrastination and your resistance might actually have something to say to you 
about what you believe about who you are and about the world around you. Things that you might have decided are true that really don't have to be. I share this because I sincerely love sharing things that I have learned the hard way through struggle and difficulty in hopes that when you experience your own struggle and when you encounter the same challenges, you might remember that you are not alone and that there is nothing that life can throw at you that doesn't present an opportunity for your growth and good. Enough about me. Let me quickly tell you about today's guest before we dive in. Nicole George is one of the best yoga teachers that I know and an all-around gift of a human. She and her husband, Jeremy, started an online yoga studio called Dope Yogi that is all about authenticity over perfection, and I love it. I love what they do. I love who they are. They also host the Dope Yogi podcast, and they share solid, encouraging content on their Instagram, at Dope Yogi, all the time. They have been offering yoga classes that have gotten me and a lot of us through this pandemic. So maybe you're like me and you have loved classes at your yoga studio for years. You have your favorite teachers and you never really considered that you could enjoy a personal practice at home. Or maybe you're like one of my best friends who decided that an at-home practice was actually the perfect opportunity to try practicing yoga consistently and not feel like the outsider in the room who doesn't know what's going on. For both of us, Nicole's classes at Dope Yogi are approachable, flexible, and transformative. Listen, if you're not sold yet after you hear this conversation, I really think you'll want to include Nicole and her wisdom and experience in your life. We talk yoga philosophy, non-attachment, growing up, and bonus content at the end, we talk counter strategies for capitalism because that's where my conversations with thoughtful people always seem to go. So after you fall in love with Nicole from this conversation, check out their live weekly Zoom classes and the on-demand yoga class library at dopeyogi.com. I have a referral code that I will link to in the show notes that will take you right to their membership page on dopeyogi.com. And full disclosure, if you follow that link, I get commission. So join us for this beautiful conversation. Take a deep breath in. Let it all go. And may your heart, your mind, and your spirit be open to whatever truths reveal themselves to you that serve you in this moment, now and always. Enjoy. We're recording. Nicole, Woo! thank you so much for this. I'm so excited. This has been a long I'm time so coming. I'm so excited. I know. Thank you so much for having me on the pod. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the pod. I I'm like so that. To yeah. <laughs> so Nicole is my favorite yoga teacher that I've ever had. And I'm oh not even ashamed God. to say that. Oh, stop. Don't pretend like you didn't know that already. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it feels nice to hear it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, in, I mean that in the way that like when I'm having, when I'm doing my own practice on, which is a thing that I never thought that I would do before quarantine, like have a daily practice on my own. Yeah. But um, when I'm, 
checking in with myself, honestly, sometimes it's your voice in my head. And it it's like really sweet. It also creeps me out that I'm able to do that. <laughs> that like <laughs> I put my body in triangle and I hear you. And I'm like, this this brain connection is very, oh very disorienting. Inside well, that makes me feel really good. I mean, you've taken my classes enough times to really actually have that in the back right, of your head. <laughs> right. It's true. It's so true. So anyway, it's a joy to get to talk to you today about yoga and community. And I wanted to have you on because you've been doing some really cool stuff. Um, and it's it's been so exciting to watch as someone who has benefited from your teaching and from your practice. Um, so I'd, I'd love for you to explain a little bit, just share the work that you and Jeremy have done on Dope Yogi together because you've you created this like online yoga platform. I know. Before it's crazy. It, everything moved to the internet. And mm-hmm. it just seemed like this, like, oh my God, this beautiful, prescient thing that you guys did where you said, there's a need, we're going to do it. And then all of a sudden, the need is bigger than you could have ever imagined. Would you share a little bit about yeah. how, that, how that worked for you? Well, we have our yoga. I don't really know what to, I guess it's a, now we can call it an online yoga studio. Yeah. When we first started Dope Yogi, we never intended for us to really monetize or have this as a business where people Mm -hmm. are paying us to take our classes online. Because as you know, I teach yoga in real life, which Mm -hmm. is how we've always done yoga. Right. Pretty typical up until 2020. (laughs) Yeah. So our whole idea behind uh, the Dope Yogi blog was a blog. So we started it as a virtual platform where we invited anybody that wanted to contribute their thoughts on yoga, but not even just yoga and just the the whole wellness industry in general, mm. it could have, you know, it was anything from meditation to spirituality to self-care to specifics on yoga. And so it evolved over time and we started getting all these contributors and it was just a free place where people could come. We aren't paying people to write for us because we're not making any money from it, but it was a place where if you have something to offer and you want to put it out into the world, here you go. This is a place where everybody is welcome to just use your voice. Beautiful. And And did you find that pretty successful? Like people seemed to get hold of that pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, it was very, we had a great response to it. People thought that it was awesome. And it was actually something that, of course, there are a lot of yoga blogs that exist. That's true. You know, we we know that. But Dope Yogi, is a, it's different. It's not, it's not like other yoga blogs. It's why it's Dope Yogi. It's because we're not going to censor anything. Mm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we are who we are. And I think a lot of times in the yoga world, there is kind of like this you just kind of think, oh, yoga is all bliss and happiness and we're just sitting sitting in meditation all day long and it's not real life. Like that's just not the reality of yoga. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to have a place where it was a really honest space that you could just say what you really felt. Beautiful. And so that was already kind of there. And then, you know, COVID hit and all of a sudden I couldn't do my job. And so I started teaching online just through Instagram. You know, I was mm-hmm. doing, everybody was doing Instagram classes. Right. 
So I was just doing donation classes and I thought, well, this, is, uh, this isn't going to last. Like we'll be back to normal. Right. What, I'll teach on Instagram for like a couple of weeks, a month or whatever. And, you know, it got to be like May and June and we were like, oh, okay, <laughs> well, we need to pivot. So that's what we did. And we pivoted hard. We were like, all right, we're going to start an online studio. And so I already had a lot of experience um, filming because we, with Dope Yogi, we had a, on our YouTube channel, we had a lot of free yoga classes. Mm. And so we had all of the equipment already and um, I was ready to just kind of do it. And so we filmed a bunch of classes and we hired a web, a really talented web designer. We tried to do as much as we could by ourselves. And that was the lesson in itself. Of, yeah. Oh, oh God, I know. Just pass along the things that you Seriously. can't do. Just like let somebody else do it for you. Seriously. Um, it's worth paying somebody else to do it. For the and, hours of like hair pulling. Oh and, my God. Tears yeah. no, and wanting to it. quit. And all <laughs> I this totally stuff. get it. Yeah. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today. And it was a very organic evolution of dope yogi in in itself. So. Yeah. It's felt that way as, you know, a participant and an observer. It's felt like, well, yeah, this is a very obvious overflow of the vision that you all already had. And yeah. and you're continuing to move in that direction and it just happened to be the direction that everyone seems to need right now, right? No, I know it really was. Well, then the cool thing about it too, I think is that even when all of this is over, who knows when that will be or what it will be like when, when we go back to, Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes normally. Um, but I think a lot of people have found through all of this that they, actually really enjoy a home practice. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are busy and can't make it to a studio or have kids or have really demanding work schedules and you only have 30 minutes and you can say, all right, I'm going to turn on my computer, go to my living room, practice for 30 minutes and then come back. Right. You know, you don't have to set aside all this time to get somewhere and do an hour or a 75 minute class or 90 minute class and then have time to shower and do all that after, you know, it's just, yeah, it makes it easier, more accessible. I think for um, people that can't afford a studio membership and also maybe just don't have the time to mm-hmm. dedicate to that. Absolutely. So, yeah. so one of the pieces that I really miss about studio practice is community, like seeing the same people mm-hmm. in classes when I go to the, you know, the 930 every day or whatever. Um, have Have you been able to build community through this platform? Yeah. You know, it's been surprising to me how much of a community we've been able to grow through virtual so we have, in addition to our on-demand classes where you can just practice them anytime, I offer live Zoom classes, a couple of live Zoom classes mm-hmm. every week, three to four classes a week. So with, obviously it's not the same as being in person, but sure. seeing people and you see the same people showing up to the same Zoom classes. And so it, in that way, it is similar to if you come to the same class at a studio every week, you're going to kind of see the same people. Yeah, And so that's been nice. And we you know, we really do communicate with a lot of people. A lot of our members will just reach out and email us. How are you guys doing? Thank you so much for this video. I love it. And, and there is that feeling of community within that. It seems so sincere too. And one thing, I mean, I love the way you described it, that you all don't censor, um, that, that you're intentionally being very genuine and very honest about what it's like to be a human and practice yoga as a human in this world that we find ourselves in that is somehow increasingly chaotic 
um, it, it's kind of put you in a position as like a spiritual leader, really, for, for all intents and purposes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank how, you. how does that feel for you? Oh, it feels, I don't know. I've never really thought my, of myself as a spiritual leader, yeah. but I, it feels like very natural, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't feel any pressure because I think that if I were trying to be somebody that I'm not mm-hmm. or somebody that people expected me to be, then I would feel a lot of pressure. I would probably mm-hmm. be anxiety ridden, but because it is a very genuine thing and everything that we do is truthfully from our hearts and it's truthfully because we want to create a space that people feel safe and comfortable in their practice. Um, and then they have a community to fall back on of people that actually care about them. I think that it, it just, you know, it feels, it feels good. It feels good to share my passion with people that, that are, they're getting something out of the things mm-hmm. that I love too. I I can't help but notice, and I especially noticed this when I was going through teacher training for myself. There are a lot of parallels between church culture and yoga studios. Mm-hmm. And like I think because there's a common element of this is a spiritual community in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I noticed that um some of my frustrations with the church because that's where I've spent most of my spiritual energy and most of my leadership has been in that context. I've Mm -hmm. noticed a lot of things that it sounds like you're kind of uh, also naming and maybe you can speak to some of this. I don't know. There's, there's kind of a mold that comes with specific types of communities and specific, I would say even modalities of yoga. So my training was in Baptiste and you taught at a primarily Baptiste studio. And there's like just this whole set of language that comes around that Mm -hmm. um, philosophy. And then there's a very specific practice that you, you never really fit the mold while you were there. No, I did not. (laughs) Yeah. What was, what is that like? Like, how did you manage to do that? Because that's really difficult for me to be in a context and know that I, I'm, I'm actively breaking the mold, mm-hmm. but I'm still here. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Well, what an interesting question. I've never really thought about it. I think a lot of it has to do with just the way that I am as a person, my personality. I'm, I've always been able, I've been blessed to be able to be, well, blessed and cursed <laughs> to be yeah. able to be fully me. Mm. And no matter what situation I'm in and no matter what the space is or the people that I'm surrounded by, I feel that it is, it's, it comes very naturally to me to be my authentic self. Mm. And well, I want to get back to why you think that is. Okay. Answer this question. <laughs> Uh, after I kind of started getting into the yoga world and I began teaching at this studio that was primarily Baptiste and that wasn't what I was trained in. And I never agreed to teach that way. And they kind of knew that mm-hmm. as I came in, um, they did try to make me teach more in that format and within, they do use a certain language and they mm-hmm. want it to be in a certain order. And I can respect that completely, but I would never... I could never change my teaching to fit into a certain mold, if yeah. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Just because it, it to me, then it's not my class. And then the people that are showing up to take my class aren't, aren't getting what they came for. Mm-hmm. 
there were definitely times, I will say there were definitely times where I felt kind of like the outcast, like mm. I was the the oddball and I was always the one that had to be different. And it wasn't like an intentional thing. It's just because I'm I'm teaching from my heart and I'm I'm not ever gonna follow a script. Yeah. And also I'm the kind of person that if you tell me to do something or I have to do something, I'm probably gonna do exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> You can ask my husband about all about that. <laughs> I, I definitely feel that in my bones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you what do you think it is about your story or your personality that's made you able to to be different unapologetically so? I think a lot of it I have to attribute a lot of it to my parents mm-hmm. and just the way that I was raised. I know that kind of sounds like an easy answer, but truthfully it is, it is 100% just my family, my background, my, I'm hundred percent Romanian. And I think maybe in European culture and I'm also from New York city. And so there's this very like, I'm not ever going to be rude to you, but I'm, will always tell you exactly what I think and how I feel, mm-hmm. you know, not unsolicited, but if you ask me my opinion or my feedback, or if I have a problem with something, I'm not the kind of person that can sort of just push it down. I will mm-hmm. be very honest and straightforward. So I think a lot of it has to do with like living in New York. It's just like that, that culture that yeah. people, you just kind of have to have a little bit of tough skin to, to live in that, in that city. Sure. To survive. Um, yeah, to survive. And and then I think just, yeah, seeing it as I was growing up, my parents are both very outspoken. Um, we are the mm-hmm. kind of family that we don't beat around the bush. <laughs> mm. I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> Did your parents raise you with any like spiritual inclination mm-hmm. or spiritual practice as well? Yeah. I grew up going to a non-denominational church with my mom. Well, okay. I was, when I was born and baptized, um, I, it's Romanian Orthodox is oh, right religion on. that, you know, they are, is followed in Romanian. That's kind of, my family really is kind of the family that just goes to church on like Easter and Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but that's more like my dad's side. And my mom, she was very, she's a very, very spiritual person. She's the person that introduced me to yoga and meditation. Mm-hmm. And she loves all of this kind of like woo-woo stuff, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so we went to a church that was non-denominational uh, and just a very welcoming open-minded kind of place. You know, it never felt judgmental or anything like that, where I think a lot of times people can maybe be a little bit turned off by um, organized religion in general because they feel like you have to fit in the specific mold. Right, right. Yeah, which is, again, that parallel with Mm -hmm. even yoga communities because there are, I think that's what makes yoga different from like a fitness studio Mm -hmm. where we, we are operating within a historical philosophy um, and and variations of historical philosophies of spiritual practice that yeah. does translate into physical movement, but is not primarily about physical fitness. Right. And and I'm wondering what has your trajectory been like with yoga philosophy and figuring out where you align or how that informs your practice and teaching. What's that journey been like for you? Well, it's the foundation of everything, really. When you when you take away all of 
the movement and the breathing and the asana and the poses and the beautiful pictures you see on Instagram, you're left with what is truly yoga, mm. in my opinion. And if we're think if we're looking at the bigger picture and where it originated from in the traditions, yeah. Um, and I think that in this Western world and modern yoga, we really lose sight of a lot of that. Um, that's one of my biggest problems with yoga studios in general, because it has, I mean, it is such a huge marketplace. First of all, you can make a lot of money in the yoga industry. Mm-hmm. Not, let me be clear, not as a yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, um, that distinction, do you want to yeah. unpack that really quick? Yes, I do. It is uh, not, <laughs> the yoga industry is, I hate to say this, but it's not here for the teachers. Um, studio culture in general is very much for the business owners and mm-hmm. for the studio owners. And, um, a lot of times the, what I, the, my biggest problem with it is that I think that it's been, the yoga industry has been balled up into, we've been put into like the fitness industry. So yeah. it's like an equal thing. So yoga teachers get paid the same as a aerobics instructor would. And I'm not saying that aerobics instructors aren't worthy of more money, but you know, you spend all this money and all this time and all this energy to get trained and trained and trained and trained. And you do years of training and hundreds of hours of training. And then you go into a yoga studio to try to get a job and they're like, okay, sure. Yeah, we'll hire you. And we're going to pay you the same amount of money that we're going to pay this person who just graduated from our 200 hour training last week, even though you have 10 years of experience teaching. So there, there's just no, um, there are no guidelines really. Mm-hmm. And the standard is not to, you, there's no way to really grow. Um, and if you're putting all your eggs in one basket is it, and if you're teaching, and I'm not saying this is for every studio, for right. most studios, if you're teaching a bunch of classes, um, you, I mean, if you're, if you're a yoga teacher and you want to be a full-time yoga teacher, you have to teach a lot of classes to, pay your bills. Yeah. And then it's this vicious cycle because you start teaching so much, you don't have time for your own practice. Mm -hmm. So then that starts to affect your mental health and then you get burnt Mm -hmm. out and you're like, I hate yoga. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because it's become quantity and not quality and Mm -hmm. all of the significance of what initially drew us into this practice has now been stripped away for the sake of making a living. Yeah. And here we are at capitalism once again. I think oh most God. of my interviews end up here because <laughs> it's just like so glaring, you know, where we're we here. are <laughs> as a society. We are all seriously struggling with this. And I think in the yoga world too, it's kind of, it's people realize that it was really hard to make money, especially studio owners. It's hard to make money. And so here comes yoga teacher trainings. And so now what all these studios are doing is they're doing, they're just cranking out like two, three, four, 200 hour trainings a year where you have 30 to 40 people in a training, 20 to 40 Mm -hmm. people in every training. Everybody's Mm -hmm. paying like three grand per person. So you have people paying you a bunch of money to take your training. And then all of a sudden you have all these people that are like, oh, I want to teach yoga. And then you're like, well, sorry, we don't have a job for you because there's so many of you. Right. Right. And Oh, and also if you want a job first, you have to work for free for all this time. And Mm -hmm. then you have to fold our laundry and clean our bathrooms. And then maybe Mm -hmm. we'll consider you as a teacher. Yeah. And we'll pay you minimum wage. (laughs) Yep. 
I experienced that. I've not been teaching nearly as long as you have. And I experienced that as like a new graduate and was like, this is, this doesn't really seem to line up with, um, but, but also, you know, that's the problem. Like that's the problem with the, the hierarchical model and the, the capitalistic model. Yeah. I, I don't even have a single clue of what to do to resolve something like that. Girl, me neither. I mean, and the thing is, come on, you were supposed to have an answer. I know. I have a couple of ideas. I don't, I don't know if they would work, but I'm very, very curious about those. You know, I think that, I think that it's going to come down to really having yoga studios that are sort of like a co-op, you know, where it's Mm -hmm. community owned and it's owned by the teachers. And mm. I think that's the only model that would really work if we want to continue on this journey. Yeah. But I think I think there's so many problems with the yoga industry and the studio culture and how it is it is turned into this huge money monster. Yeah. It's become about wealth and transfer yeah. of wealth. Yeah. Yeah, and it's sad because the people that want, that take yoga, they come to yoga classes, they love their yoga teachers, but I think a lot of times they don't understand that their yoga teachers, the people that they care about and love, they're coming to these classes, they want to support, they think you're I'm supporting you by coming to class, which most of the time, you know, you can pack out a room and you really have a cap on how much you're going to be able to make as a teacher. And so yeah. the teachers are, you know, they're trying to give you a powerful spiritual experience. They're trying to empower you. They're trying to make you feel good in your body. They're trying to use yoga as therapy in so many different Mm -hmm. forms. Meanwhile, you know, they're doing all of this in like 60 minutes. Right. And they're cleaning the bathrooms after class and they're getting paid like $40. So, and like all the check-in stuff and like Mm -hmm. handling everyone's last minute anxiety when they're rushing in the door and Mm -hmm. didn't sign up or don't know how to pay or Mm -hmm. all of these. Yeah. You're, you're, functioning as so many different roles. Yeah. And you have to hold the space. You have to show up and stand in front of that class and make people feel comfortable and grounded. And like, you're not like running around, like sweating because you had to lock the door and somebody was mad at you because they didn't make it in class sometimes. Yeah. And, and this is, this is the parallel to church that I've noticed is that there's this like experiential model in a lot of, um, so what we're talking about is like a power flow studio, a, fast paced, it does feel much more like a a workout. Mm -hmm. And, and that was, I'll be very honest. That was what initially attracted me to it Mm -hmm. was like, I'm going to get to move my body, sweat and have like a guided experience inward. That sounds perfect, you know, and I do still love power yoga. I think it's awesome. It has its, it has its place in the, in the world. Right. Totally. And, and I think the parallel with the church is there are these like very experiential models of church where you go, I mean, back when people used to go to the same place at the same time, you would go pack out an auditorium with thousands of people, have a high energy experience, singing Mm -hmm. the same songs, raising your hands, Mm -hmm. have a vibrant sermon. Someone like kind of gives you that kick spiritually Mm -hmm. to last you through the week it's exciting. You feel yeah. buzzed when you leave and you see your friends and you hug them, but you don't know anything about their lives. And then you say goodbye and you see them next week. And 
And there is a really similar flow to being a part of like a power yoga studio, which everything which is, you just said sounds like you know, going to a yoga class too. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and that's not bad. None of it's no. bad. It's just that it, it, um, for me, it only was the surface level engagement with yoga and it was a good place to start, but there's, there's a richness and a truth that you can drop through just the like high energy experience, mm-hmm. drop through that into a more contemplative practice mm-hmm. into a more sustainable way of living. And that's, I think, again, what I love about your teaching. And it, it, is, it requires an authenticity to not just provide an experience, but to, to take a role of teacher mm-hmm. and guide. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I, I think that it takes some experience first yeah. of all, you know, to take ownership of the role that you do have and, and to really, it, you have to learn how to not put yourself on a pedestal either because people will I'm show sure. up to your class and they'll think, well, you're the teacher. So you must know everything. And you're like, well, I don't know anything. I just, right, I just right. know what I know. <laughs> don't look at me for answers, but I'll, I'll share with you, you know, my thoughts and my feelings, but that in um, and of itself, though, what you just said is like such a, a beautiful humility that <laughs> I, I don't think comes in a lot of the, you know, experiential, like high energy classes that we can sign up for. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? It's, there's a, there's a, a very real uh, spiritual maturity that comes with a commitment to, to what you said before, what, when you strip away the asana, when you strip away mm-hmm. the movement, the breath, what you have left mm-hmm. is really like the, the heart of yoga. Yeah. Well, that's the yoga. That's the actual yoga. And that's where, mm-hmm. that's why we do everything that we do in, in a yoga setting, in a class setting on our mats is so that we can start to peel back some of these external layers and some of these things that we just, you know, we walk around holding onto. And when we take all that away, the the physical practice is so that we can hopefully over time, over this repetitive movement and then doing this over and over and over again, it can, it can be a way to access what's really there for you underneath all of the stuff. So like mm-hmm. who you are at your core mm-hmm. and that in itself is the yoga is the work that we do to get to like the actual yoga. And that's how we can start to apply the practice of yoga into everything that we do outside of the, the four corners of your mat, because that's, that's where yoga really lives. You know, mm-hmm. it's not in the yoga studio. It's not in the, really complicated asanas. That's, those are just ways that we can access, you know, different ways that we can arrive at who we really are. Yeah. I love it. I love that it boils down to really knowing ourselves, Mm -hmm. knowing ourselves and and choosing oneness. Yes. Actively giving ourselves to that. Yes. Yes. Right. With this being like the simple truth at the core of yoga and a yoga practice, there are so many different philosophies and so many different kinds of studios. And have you had a diverse experience of ways that philosophies 
can, because it's almost for, for listeners who don't have a context of a yoga practice, it's really a distinction that's comparable to like a denominational difference in the church. Yeah, so for sure. It's totally different to go worship at a Southern Baptist church mm-hmm. versus a Roman Catholic church and then everywhere in between. Yeah. Have you noticed that philosophies will shape a community in a different way? Yeah, definitely. I I think just like any other community space where we sort of follow this guideline, you know, we have the traditions that have been passed down over generations or even centuries in this case, um, that, yeah, I mean, if you're going to, for example, like I, I teach vinyasa yoga and which is kind of a, um, a, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, oh, a, shoot. that's what it looks like you're doing. Yeah. Like a limb, like a, it's, yeah, but I don't want to say limb. It is like a baby of Ashtanga yoga, which was sort of like traditionally, that's kind of where this like whole flow yoga came mm-hmm. from. Um, and it's really taught on the eight limbs of yoga. So it's Patanjali. And if you've ever read anything about yoga or yoga philosophy, there's a really good chance that you've heard of Patanjali or the yoga sutras. Mm -hmm. And within the yoga sutras, which is basically we can say it's like the yoga Bible Mm -hmm. and you have eight limbs. And so Patanjali says there are these eight limbs. It's an eight limb path and if you get down all the way to the eighth limb, you have samadhi, which is like you found your peace. You basically found your heaven. Mm. And it's a place where you don't have any more suffering. And so mm. we do all of these things to get to this one thing, which is mm-hmm. kind of like the goal, right? Yeah. So that's like one, that's just one, but that's one style. And then there's all these different other kind of ways that people can get there. The asana or the the vinyasa is one style is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's one, well, vinyasa is sort of like a new, it's a new thing, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying there's different philosophies on how we get there. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know there are some philosophies that aren't even movement based. Yeah. Are there communities that are practicing these kinds of yoga together? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that yoga kind of like everything else, there are so many different phases of it. And so I think mm-hmm. in our younger years, we are drawn to practices like power yoga because mm-hmm. our bodies are, that's, we're primed for that. We're ready. We have energy. We want to exert that energy. Mm-hmm. And we're, as we, as we age, we start to, there's just seasons of the practice. And I think over time, you'll hear from a lot of older yogis who have been practicing their whole lives. Other than Ashtanga yogis are like super hardcore. They are like hardcore. They are like doing so true primary secondary season until they're like, I mean, um, series until they're like in their seventies, you know, (laughs) and that took, yes, I have experienced that. It's amazing. Yeah. It's very disciplined. There are communities for sure that are just like strictly meditation based or, Mm you know, Kundalini yoga, that's another really good uh, example. They're just different styles where you find your groove, like you find the, your people. And for me, I've always been drawn to vinyasa because I think a lot of it has to do with, I do have a a background in dance Mm -hmm. and it is a very like dancey kind of flowy sort of Mm -hmm. thing. You know, Mm -hmm. if you've ever taken a vinyasa yoga class, you'll, you'll see that it's very 
movement-based mm-hmm. where a lot of yoga like hatha yoga or restorative yoga, yin yoga, these different styles of yoga are more meditative, mm-hmm. a lot slower, a lot stretchier, and there's nothing wrong with any of them. They yeah. are all super valuable. And like I said, it just is based on what season of your life are you in. And you know, you might go back and forth because you might show up one day and you have a, a really bad shoulder injury and all of a sudden you can't practice vinyasa anymore because we do the shit. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I'll just put the little E next to it. It's fine. It's great. We do a bunch of like downward facing dogs and plank pose, which is something you can't do when you have a shoulder injury. So my point is that you start to, if you follow the practice of yoga, you have to realize that it's not always going to be the same, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of the tools. And that's one of the teachings is non-attachment is like learning how to allow yourself to move and change and evolve which means that if you are a person who is constantly evolving, which let's hope that that's the case for all of yeah, us, sure, that your practice is going to evolve as well. Right. Because if it's not, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. If you right. are a person who's going to be changing forever and learning and growing forever, well, let's hope that your yoga practice does as well. We can't right. ever expect anything to stay the same. And probably the people you're practicing with and learning from also, also rotate out and bring new life into. Absolutely. Because it's just like any other teacher, you know, you you find your teacher and then you, maybe you outgrow that teacher or Mm -hmm. maybe that teacher switches, changes directions of what they're about and what the style that they like to teach. And so, and it's totally, it's totally fine. Yeah. You know, this relationship has been great and now I'm moving on. Right. Right. It's like, Instead of, I had this vision once when I was actually praying about whether to keep seeing the therapist that had, that had helped me so much. Like the most recent therapy that I really worked intensively through, I was praying about whether it was time to move on or not. And I had this image of sort of like a launching pad. Mm-hmm. She really was, I don't know if you ever played like Mario Kart or mm-hmm. those kinds of racing games yeah. where, you know, you, ru- you run over the right thing and then it, or you hit the star and it just shoots you off. Yes. So I had this image of like, she was that for me. She really accelerated healing and life and, and coming alive for me. And, and I had this impulse to like rocket off into the sky and circle back and come and do it again. And, and I saw that like, that's what I would be doing. If I kept seeing Sarah, then I would just end up in this loop Mm -hmm. for as long as I keep coming back for that hit and that push forward, I'm going to stay circling around here. Mm -hmm. But the truth was that her purpose in my life was to push me forward, to propel me into something brand new. And it was, it was authentic to say, this is this has served its purpose in my life and I'm grateful for it. Yes, and that is so true for teachers, for therapists, for relationships, friends. Mm-hmm. You know, you meet these people and I believe that everybody comes into your life for a, a reason. Yeah. And we can learn so much from the people that come into our lives even and even more so the people that challenge us. Yeah. And oh yeah, that's a good point, word. Yeah. At some point, we have to realize that it's okay to make these life edits, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. We're just editing out the things that 
And it doesn't always have to be because it's a negative thing. It's just because we grow and then we've kind of reached the capacity for what, you know, what this relationship or this teacher is able to bring me. And now, you know, like you said, that person was there to propel you to the next level. And it's like Mm -hmm. you're leveling up and there's absolutely, in my opinion, nothing wrong with that. Right. And it feels like so much conflict and and suffering comes from demanding that things stay in the role that they used to be in our lives, right? Like a a breakup, you know, I have historically not broken up very well. I have spent like a long time grieving and clinging because it's really hard for me to imagine the possibility of Mm -hmm. uh, a positive parting. But the truth is, you know, anything anything serving its purpose in our life is to be celebrated and mm-hmm. and met with gratitude even at the end of its season. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the main teachings of yoga. It's uh, one of the yamas. It's non-attachment. It's aparigraha. So mm-hmm. it's all about non-grasping. When, you've, when something leaves your life, it doesn't have to be that devastation, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's the teaching of, okay, allowing this to change, allowing Mm -hmm. it to, allowing for grace to have it be okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay Mm -hmm. because we are always changing. And the longer we attach ourselves to this idea that things have to stay exactly how they are, that is really going to set us up for so much disappointment. And it's like, it's super, it can be broken down to something so basic, like you're really expectations when we have, when we really, we plan on something and we're attached to this thing happening and then it doesn't happen. And then we're like, right. what? Now I'm super upset about that. Right. So it just, you know, it is what it is. As, as cliche as that sounds. It's true. <laughs> yeah, It's true. And, and I, I don't know if you'll relate to this at all, but because I'm constantly analyzing myself mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, same for better or for worse, um, I will start to recognize attachment to expectations in myself. And then I just start beating me up about having expectations rather than letting them go. And so I like continue to cling even when I can see them because I want to be able to be, you know, enlightened or just matured past this. And yeah, attachment to wanting to get it right. Like, wait, I'm supposed to be not attached to this. (laughs) Gosh, we are so hard on ourselves. Oh my gosh, it's so hard to be a human being. Man, it is. But like, <laughs> sometimes I remember it's supposed to be hard. Like, yeah, that's what we're doing here. Yes. Yeah. Nobody it's told us hard, this but yeah, but it can be fun too. It is fun. It is fun. It is fun. It's hard and it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I And I think the physical practice of yoga has been one of the, the most tangible teachers of that for me is like, it's hard. Yeah. You're also still okay. And it it can be fun if you let it be. And that that does transcend. That's a, that's a beautiful application, like all the way through. Yeah. Cycles around. I'm, I'm thinking also about how you mentioned this as a, um, a young Mm -hmm. sort of yoga. And that really resonates with me because I, I've been sitting with the idea that our country is very young. Um, you know, our, our country comparatively for the rest of the world and human societies is like the bratty teenager who insists to her grandmother that she has a better understanding 
of reality. Sure. Right. For and sure. That's a great analogy. It's very true. We are still, we are babies in the grand scheme of the world and right. the countries in the world. Right. And it's very easy for it to turn sour when an immature being insists on attachment to the way things are. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Uh, what if, what if when we were 16, we got to decide? how we were going to live for the rest of our lives. And we stayed 16 as we grew, you know, our lives reflected what we preferred when we were 16 years old. Mm, it's what a it's hard just, life it would be. Right. Right. And like miserable, I think. I'm trying to think what that would even have been for me. I have no idea. I, I just, was like very, very when I was 16, I was like, I know everything. Oh, yeah. And if you try to tell me that I don't know everything, well, boy, let me tell you how much right. I know about what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> right. Same, same. Probably until I like reached a point in my faith that being certain and having the right answers just didn't work anymore and it had to all crumble. And so then my whole sense of selfhood and identity also had to crumble. Yeah. I yeah. Think that's how I grew out of it. What was that like for you? Well, I think for me, I was very, I was a very determined teenager and very motivated to get on with my life and to become an adult. And now I'm Mm -hmm. 32 and I'm like, wow, why, why did I have to rush that? Right. I, so I graduated, I skipped my senior year of high school. I graduated high school when I was 17 and I was a junior. Bold move. I was very bold. And I was like, uh, I'm ready for college. I'm ready to be an adult. I want to get a job. I'm ready to start making money and, you know, all this stuff. And so my mom was like, okay, well, yeah, I had all my credits and I took like my senior year of English, my junior year. So that was like the only class that I really needed to graduate early. And I graduated. And, and then I think being kind of a little bit younger than everybody else as I got into college and, but I was always very independent as, mm-hmm. as a young child, I always was like, I got this. Mm-hmm. I don't need help. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which as no, an adult, you. I'm like, I had to have a lot of therapy to like realize that, okay, it's okay. If you need help, <laughs> you do need help. Of course it you need really, help. It's so hard though. It's so hard. And I'm an Enneagram three. So I was going to ask. Okay. Yeah. I'm a three. So, you know, if you know anything about the Enneagram, it's like, okay, <laughs> it all makes sense. <laughs> Oh, totally. Why I am the way that I am. (laughs) Isn't that the thing about the Enneagram? It's like the first time you encounter the shadow side of your number, like throw the computer across the room. Like, (laughs) how dare you tell me about myself? (laughs) But then I think part of the growing and the growing up was just going through um, like traumas and life Mm. tragedies. And that Mm. really puts everything into perspective. I don't really remember what the original question was. But. Well, no, you just answered it perfectly, actually. Great job. But the, the, the original question was, how did you outgrow your need to be right and certain? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. I mean, it was me just literally going through the hard stuff, the things mm-hmm. that nobody prepares you for. And even if the, they tried to prepare you, you cannot be prepared for these things. Mm. And just really making a lot of mistakes. Right. Right. And, and both of those are the things that I spend my whole life trying to avoid happening. And then when they happen, Mm -hmm. I have the choice 
-hmm. is this tragedy or is this opportunity? And I think that's the really beautiful thing about a contemplative path, no matter what practice it is. You know, when you encounter things like the Enneagram and you encounter yoga and you encounter a mystical faith or contemplative prayer practice, it gives us the opportunity to ground ourselves in what is and is not true. Yeah. What is and is not real. And and then empowers us to be able to move forward in a way that reflects love ultimately. Yeah. And I think it empowers us to, and I hope that it empowers us to constantly question everything and to really use those critical thinking skills and to use that part of your brain that says, wait a minute, just because I was taught this growing up or I saw this growing up, is Mm. this real? Is this the truth? Or what is the truth? And what is the truth for me? Because what's true for me might not be true for you. And that is so okay. I think that we all have, there's enough space for all of us to really own who we are. And that's part of the authenticity. That's part of showing up as, Mm. as who you are, like trusting that you, you are so you that, that you know, you know your, the, that like inner dialogue, you know that your nature beneath that surface level. Yeah, which takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the word coming to mind is deprogramming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of being able to, as you just said, name the stories that I've internalized that tell me who I think I am. And then coming to a place where I'm able to say, I am the one observing these stories. I get to choose what I integrate into my sense of self. But then, you know, I have to be around other people eventually and it'll go like flip right back into programmed mode. You know, it's such a struggle, but like a a good one. Balancing act. It's like the Mm -hmm. unlearning and relearning. And then how do we incorporate this in being reasonable, decent human beings to the people that we encounter in our lives? Yeah. So I have this, I don't know, it might be an idealism, an optimism Mm -hmm. in my thinking that every time I encounter this truth, and I do over and over again, every person I talk to who has any sense of their own spiritual growth and trajectory, this is the same thing. Everyone is is experiencing the same thing Mm -hmm. on the path to truth. Like seeking, there are so many of Jesus's words uh, flashing into my mind right now. Knock and the door will be opened. Yeah. Seek and you will find. Yeah. If you are looking for truth, you'll know it. And so because I see that there is this like ineffable, I will say definitely it's ineffable. You can't really name uh, a lot of this truth except for for me to call it love. That's That's the truest thing I know to call it. But um, this is where we end up as individuals. And I just naively want to believe that that's where the collective humanity has to be heading to, right? Like we have these parallel that. journeys, you know, we have parallel naive, yeah. waking up from our 16 year old selves and becoming women in our early thirties and being able to look back with gratitude on that journey and recognize mm-hmm. That has to be available for our country. You mm-hmm. know, it has to be available to spiritual communities, to yoga communities, to the church. Like they, this transformation has to be available. But I think what we look around and see instead is a lot of clinging, mm-hmm. a lot of attachment to how we've always done things and how things 
have have to be. Yeah, and also that I feel like a lot of people need their their need to be right and their need yeah. to to make everybody understand and see their perspective as as truth. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I believe what you said is very true and maybe it is naive to think this and perhaps not everybody consciously understands this, but I think we all ultimately want and are seeking the same thing. Yeah. And that that is encompassed by love, right? right? And it's like that we might all have very, very different paths of getting there, but no matter what road you take, what path you decide to take to lead you there, I think we all want the same thing. Yeah, We want to feel loved. We want to love each other. And we probably all want peace. <laughs> right. It seems, it seems like a pretty fundamental human That's line. what I want. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. But, you know, and then it's, it's hard. It's society. You know, we all have so many different opinions. And now with this social media age that we're in, everybody feels like their opinion needs to be heard and yeah. to be publicly put out there and not everybody's opinion needs to be put out there. Okay, let me just say that. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, a lot of wisdom in knowing when to hold our thoughts and perspectives to ourselves. Yeah, for sure. But there, I mean, there's low, it feels like a low stakes context for so many people to just yeah. blast their inner dialogue on the internet. But to me, it feels very high stakes. It feels like I have no control or idea over what other people's reactions are going to be to the yeah. content that I produce. And it's like deeply vulnerable to release my creative work into the world or my thoughts. But we well, do it. Well, it should be vulnerable. You know, it is a vulnerable thing. You're putting yourself out there, but it's important that you're thinking about how it's going to land. That's right. Because really it boils down to you know, you can have the best intention in the world, but yeah. the impact as is the thing that actually matters. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what your intention is, you have to think about how it's going to impact the people that see what you're putting out there. Mm, in my that's, a, that's a really good check-in before posting anything. And I think that applies to anyone. Yeah, for sure. Before you hit post is, you know, why are you saying this? Mm-hmm. Who is this? Are you saying this for you? Is it ego driven? Are you really right. trying to help people? Are you trying to piss people off? Right. Just go without being said. <laughs> right. Right. And like recognize that the general tone and emotion yes. behind your content does get conveyed and is the more yes. impactful piece compared to the content that you actually produce. Yes. That's a great word. The tone of what you put on the internet is really important. Mm-hmm. And then also just remembering that, you know, what you put on the internet, it stays on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Permanence <laughs> <laughs> has never been more terrifying than, yeah. than having recorded my voice and released it into the world for <laughs> a year well, I'm straight. I'm so but, proud of you for doing it. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, I think it's a good opportunity to practice self-compassion and acceptance too, because I'm sure there are homilies I released a year ago that I could listen back to and say like, yeah, probably, probably would have phrased that differently now, but yeah, for whatever. Sure, for sure. You know? Sometimes I go back and listen to our podcast and I'm like, wow, why did I say that? Yeah. Why yeah. would you say that? Well, because you're a human and it was in the right. moment and it's okay. Right. And there has to be that grace for you to mess up or not yeah. even mess up, but just to, you know, not be perfect. It's right. Okay. Be imperfect, be in process. 
and recognize like this is a chance to celebrate the process. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a threat to to my ego. Well, yeah. actually, I think it is a threat to my ego and there's an opportunity for me to put my ego to rest in that moment. Yes. I and mean, that's a lifelong journey in itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I think too the content we put out as individuals is is really like only but so impactful, but having the weight of a community with you, really I don't think that one person is going to have a huge influence just by posting their opinions on Facebook or Instagram or like by starting a podcast, you know. Mm-hmm. The influence really isn't in contributing ideas so much as it's in transformation, mm-hmm. transformation of people. And to me, that's measured by community. That's measured by like what we create, how much love we're creating yeah. with what we're doing, with our work. Right. I completely agree with you. I mean, I don't have anything to add to that <laughs> because yeah. you said it so beautifully. Well, it's true. You know, it is, we as individuals only hold so much weight as far mm-hmm. as what, like what you said, how we are impacting people. But once we begin creating these communities, communities mm-hmm. are very powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Yeah. And numbers, you know, we are more powerful. Definitely. And I think it's just going to, we're at a place where there are enough of us who are like really done with capitalism, at least in the way that we've, we've known capitalism to prey upon the weak and just continue to flow wealth to the already wealthy. And those of us who are tired of patriarchy and tired of these internalized systems that we've had, there has to be a better way to organize community. There has to be a better way to create authentic space and transformation in people. It sounds like you have some ideas about that. Well, I think it just all starts with the self. I think that it has to start from such an individual baseline level because to me, it's a perfect example. Like I literally wanted to go to college when I was 17 so I could start making money. I mean, what a messed up thing for a a child to be like, I'm ready to get into the workforce because this is, you know, what you were, what you're taught and you're at first. Yeah. That was what you knew to be valuable. Yes, exactly. And if I wanted to be worthy, then I needed to make a lot of money. And if I wanted to be respected in society, then I had to have a really high level, important job so that I could tell people this is my job title. And they, in my mind at that time, they you are say, an Enneagram wow. three. Yeah. Oh my God, dude. I'm like such a three. It's crazy. But that's really how I thought it was going to go. I thought, well, I'm just going to go on with my life and I'm going to start working so I can make a lot of money and I can buy a house and I can buy mm-hmm. a car and I can, um, you know, what, like what, what's then what? Join the rat race. <laughs> yeah. Join the rat race. And then, you know, about four years into it, five years into it, I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. And well, then that's also around the time that I found really found yoga. I'd been practicing yoga, but not ever very regularly. And um, Mm -hmm. I decided to do my teacher training just for fun. But Just for fun. It was literally just for fun. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that we have to break the cycle. Like it can't, it's corporations and capitalism is so powerful and Mm -hmm. we are just driven by that whole Mm -hmm. entire ideal of, well, I need to wake up because if I don't get up 
and mm. do my morning routine, then my whole day is messed up. And if I'm not productive, if I didn't get all these things done by 9 a.m., right. I'm way be- and then I'm behind. But you're like, what? Behind on what? Because yeah. I t- first of all, time is a construct and right. it is what you make it. So you're we're putting all of these, this pressure on ourselves to be who society wants us to be. And it mm. really, it we lose sight of who we are when we're doing it because that's what we were just basically brainwashed to believe was valuable as young children. And so like, hopefully by the time our generation has kids, hopefully those kids can be like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not buying into all of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not clocking in and clocking out at the end of the day because I have bigger dreams than to make big corporations, lots of money. Right. Right. I love that you're using the word corporation too, because that's such a, that word is a very powerful reflection of what's really happening in these entities we create that are bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, corporal is rooted in the the word body. Mm-hmm. So I have this physical body that's just me, an individual. But then when I join together with multiple people to accomplish a vision that I cannot do by myself, mm-hmm. you know, just like you hired a, a web designer because mm-hmm. it was not worth it for you to continue to do that. There's something incredibly beautiful about creating a body, like a bigger body, a bigger entity mm-hmm. in order to serve this mission. The problem is that those corporations in America have historically served capitalism as their vision. It is just to make money that we create corporations. And that is bullshit. That is straight up bullshit. Yeah. And it's life-sucking. It's not, you know, and that's, I think as, as long as our society goes on in the way that we operate, where you know, 99% of the wealth in this country, I mean, there's such a wealth disparity Mm-hmm. This is like a whole nother topic where we probably talk for like hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we like, definitely could. There's an, this crazy wealth disparity, like it's net, like never before. The society as a whole has never seen this before, where 99% of the wealth is being held by 1% of the population. And the rest of us are just like, hey, can I like get a. Can right. I catch a break? Like, right. Like, what are you doing with all of this up there? Yeah. What are you even yeah. doing with billions of dollars? Yeah. And the fact that that is just kind of like the, what we are, what we value as a society, like, wow, those people are rich. That must mean that they're really important. Right. You no, know, it's just, it's sad. And so I think that as long as we continue on in this fashion, it's, mm-hmm. we're not, it's not going to be good. So we have to like, we have to be the ones to break the cycle. Totally. Yeah. And I've found this distinction because, you know, the, the benefit to creating a a bigger and uh, more effective entity, a corporation is power Mm -hmm. because it's true that we create power when we align our gifts and our contributions towards a greater purpose. It's incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for these people acquiring wealth. There's the illusion of power at the top. There's, There's this promise that you're going to be big and powerful. And sure, maybe you are, but also you have um, become that money. You have yeah. lost yourself and you actually, like the money is what has power over you at some point. Yeah. And it, the, the, you get lost. The real you gets lost in the race towards this like elusive finish line that can never really be reached. And so I, I have this vision of what if, 
what if we had powerful corporations, bodies of people committed to power with Mm -hmm. instead of power over? Mm -hmm. So we're no longer climbing over each other because God, now that we've included corporations that are hundreds of people, thousands of people contributing, like an individual just cannot compete with something that big. We get squashed, like straight up stepped on yeah, by these enormously powerful entities. And what if they weren't fighting to climb over each other and get to the top? What if they were creating a more beautiful world? We would be is living that- in... <laughs> This is like the utopia that we're looking for. I know, and it yeah. feels like, well, yeah, I I see it. You see it. A lot of us see it. What do we do? Yeah. Well, you because know? it's like by when you get to the top, whatever the top means, I guess that's when you have all these millions and billions of dollars. Is your life that much more valuable? Or mm-hmm. is are you spending, how are you spending your time? How, how does that make you feel? Because mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that once you have more than a certain amount of money, you don't feel much different. And there's this um, potentially actually come, going back to yoga philosophy says that there's a quote from the yoga sutras that's something along the lines of what you possess possesses you. Mm. And the more that we grasp and the more that we try to hoard and attain and get for ourselves, it's that's the stuff that weighs you down. And so often you find that the happiest people are the people that don't really have a lot because they're not, they don't have all these responsibilities and the things that are weighing them Mm -hmm. down. They're just living. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what Mm -hmm. would it be like to just live without without trying to constantly be better and get more and go climb the ladder. And, you know, we're all guilty of it to a certain mm-hmm. extent, I think, because mm-hmm. it's just kind of, we're programmed this way. Sure. Yeah. I think what's difficult for me in this is um, like, I, I have gotten to a place where individually I don't feel the need to play the game, mm-hmm. but I still swim in this water of scarcity, a scarcity mindset. And so yeah. Like I come to peace with, and even not peace, but like genuine excitement about living by faith and saying like, I have everything I need today and I trust that I'll have everything I need tomorrow. And I'm going to keep living life and contributing in the way that feels right for me and trust that like this will take me in the direction that I can offer the best um, or the most impactful part of myself to society, like to the world. And I'm not going to do that by participating in a fear that I won't have enough because that that's what makes me climb over other people. But it's so hard to emerge back into society, you know, in which everyone's still kind of bought into it. And I hear a lot of people very resigned to the idea of scarcity and capitalism. Like, yeah, well, I see it, but what, what, is ever going to change. Yeah. Well, of course it won't unless we want, unless we wanted to and try to make it change. Together. But, you know, together. Exactly. Yeah. You do such a great job at really living authentically. Like you have, ever since I've known you, you've just kind of been like, yeah, this is what I'm doing now. I'm just this, I'm figuring it out. This is what yeah. I feel called to do. And I think that speaks so highly of your character. And it's like, that is the kind of thinking that, I believe is going to, as a whole, as society, as a whole, we have to get more 
in that direction of not what can you do for me, but Mm -hmm. how can we work together to lift each other up, you Mm -hmm. know, and to support each other versus if I do this for you, how's this going to benefit me? Right, right. It just means trusting that I'm going to be okay and I'm going to be taken care of and my needs don't take precedence over yours at this moment. I'm, I'm choosing to lift you up instead. That's like, it just requires like a level of personal evolution that I want to be available to everyone, you know? Yeah. And it's like letting go of the, what's the saying? It's like keeping up with the Joneses or whatever they say. Like, you know, you see ever, you see other people, again, I'm doing air quotes, succeeding and they're getting, they're, it seems like they're really, they're taking off, their businesses are taking off and you have this, even if it's, you don't really want it. It's like subconscious. You feel like that little, mm, like, mm-hmm. I kind of want that, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And so for that me, shiny. yeah, it's new. It's shiny. It seems really like luxurious and nice. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I like nice things. And yeah. at the same time, I'm like a hippie who like wants to, I go back and forth all the time. I'm like, tell Jeremy, my husband, I'm like, can we just go off the grid? Like I want to just go mm-hmm. off the grid completely. I don't want to deal with this bullshit. I want I to just like do our thing. I want to have a little steadfast. I want to live off our land. I just want to have like 10 dogs and mm-hmm. chickens and sounds right. Just like wake up and take a long walk. And yeah. And then I go back to like, okay, but if we do that, how am I gonna use my energy to give back to the world. Right. Like I can't, you know, to me, it's like, of course that sounds so awesome. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of selfish of me to do that right at this point in our lives where it would, I don't want to deal. I don't want to turn on the news and see everything that's happening in the world. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and it is, it pushes me to want to make changes in our own immediate circles and our community, because I really feel like that's where it starts. And then, you know, if we, obviously I can't change the world, but I can hopefully maybe influence a couple of people in my life and my immediate Mm -hmm. circle to change their way of thinking and that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I'm, I totally relate to that. I'm my impulse at least once a week, actually the quarantine really did this for me because I was by myself for the first three weeks of social distancing. And it was like a little hermitage for me. And I thought, actually, this isn't so bad. Yeah. Um, I feel like I can totally operate with my values and um, support other people who want to be a part of it. But like, really, I feel more grounded in myself and the growth that I had been working on up until that point. It just became so much more accessible to me in distancing myself from from society. Yeah. So that that like really surprised me to find that in myself and... I realized that is kind of a selfish mentality to be like, well, I should just remove myself from these triggers or this difficulty. But I think there is actually this, I always come back to like a commune. I, I really, yeah. I have this vision of a monastic community of people who commit to spiritual practice, to meditating together every day and sustaining a community together and inviting other people in for, for retreat from the rest of the world, for transformation, for yeah. intensive times to come and be in a community and be a part of something where we care for each other and we take care of this that we've built and, and we serve the people around us and we have a way out. Yeah, We have a way out. 
we just have to be willing to do it. Yes. Yes. I, yeah. I'm like so ready to, to make this happen. Well, you know? let me know. Yeah. Yogi will be a part of this. Good. <laughs> Good. Well, man, this has been really enjoyable and encouraging. I'm so grateful to get to talk about all of the ideas with you and I know. Same. I thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. I was really looking forward to it and it's fun to be on the other end of it because that's right. You know, we're always interviewing people on our podcast and I love, Mm -hmm. I love this. So I really appreciate it. And I love our talk and our just, it's good to have these conversations because this is what it's all about. You know, this This is is it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I will link to Nicole's work at Dope Yogi in the show notes, but it's very easy to find. It's dopeyogi.com, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's the website and it's beautiful and it's very navigable. And if you're looking for yoga classes, I can't, obviously I can't (laughs) praise Nicole's work enough because (laughs) she's, she's Nicole and it's, and it shows and it's really powerful. So um, highly recommend joining her for a flow Mm. at some point. Um, I like to close these conversations by asking what's, what's one spiritual practice bringing you life right now? Mm. Daily walks, which are like for me, meditative and spiritual solo walks. I walk the dogs in the morning, but then going on a second walk by myself without headphones, without podcasts, without music, and really just feeling nature and the power Mm. of just the universe and what is surrounding us. This just like inevitable life force that we are all surrounded by and supported by. To me, just connecting to that every morning, um, that and journaling. Mm. Oh my gosh. Without the yeah. journaling, I don't know where I would be today. Same. I would just be a ball of tangled thoughts up here. Oh they yeah. Never, I yeah. highly recommend journaling for anybody mm. that I know it sounds a little bit cheesy, but, and it's not something that just 14 year old girls can benefit from. <laughs> right. For sure. A lifelong practice where you could just put your thoughts out on paper and sometimes things come out that you didn't even know you were feeling. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's an excellent self-observation mechanism. So, well, Nicole, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you again for for your time and your wisdom. And you guys check out Dope Yogi and their podcast and all of all of their good work too. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.